Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 24 through 30, and then also 36 through 43. And it's verses 24 through 30, and verses 36 through 43. And the reason why there are uh, two passages that are not right next to each other is we are doing the the parable of the wheat and the tares. We're doing the... the uh, public giving of the parable, and then also the explanation of it. And these things are separated by a few verses. So we'll look at verses 24 through 30 and 36 through 43. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And from verse 36, then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The son of man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. O Father, how we do pray that you would bless now the preaching of your word, that you would be with me as I proclaim your word, that you would be with those who hear, that even as the Lord Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Lord, may it be that you would grant all here uh, to have the ears to hear your word. May it not be a cause for offense. May it not be a cause for stumbling. But, O Lord, may it be used by you to strengthen the faith of your people, to give them comfort and grace to understand more fully the truths that the Lord Jesus Christ has given with respect to the kingdom of God, that we might not be tempted to turn away from you, 
that we might not be tempted to think that the things that we see today are outside of your control, that they are happening contrary to your plan, but that we would see that even when we see evil in the midst of the world, and even more particularly in the church, that even this is, uh, though done by an enemy, is yet done according to your purpose and is part of your plan. And in the end, in the end, it will be the righteous who shine forth uh, like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Help us to see these truths that our hearts might be encouraged. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the question of evil is a classic question that has caused many problems through the ages. Now, typically the way the question of evil is put forward is, how can there be evil in the world and there be a God? This is something that uh, atheists often use. They'll say, you know, you can have, with these three propositions, you can have two, but not all three. They'll say, there's evil in the world, God is good, and God is in control. And they'll say, you can have any two, but you can't have three. And so the idea is that uh, if there is evil in the world, then God either can't be good, or he is not in control. And yet we find that the scriptures do in fact teach that God is good, that he is in control of all things, that he is sovereign over evil, though not its author, that everything that happens in this world that appears to be evil will in fact contribute to the revelation of the glory of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's one question that we can ask with regard to evil. Uh, How is it that there can be evil in the world? There's another question though that we can ask with regard to evil, and that is, Um, I can understand why there would be evil in the world because of sin, but if the Lord Jesus Christ has come, would it not be the case that with his coming, now there will be no more evil in the world? Uh, Why is it the case that now after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are still, there's still so much sin in this world? Um, Couldn't you look at passages from the prophets like uh, those which speak of the Lord Jesus Christ being the king of righteousness, the king of justice who brings forth justice to the nations? Uh, Do we see this justice going forth to the nations uh, today? Uh, These kind of questions will will cause people to say, you know, I can live how I want uh, because I know that uh, though the Christians are claiming that Jesus is the king of righteousness, I can see many Christians are suffering today. And many uh, wicked people, many people who cast aside God, they are uh, prospering today. How are we to make sense of this reality if the Lord Jesus Christ has come as the great king uh, of of righteousness? Now, in order to answer this question, we get some help from uh, Augustine, one of the great church fathers of the 4th and 5th century, who says that God punishes the wicked enough for all of us to know that he is a God of justice and that uh, that he does not at all approve of wickedness. And yet he leaves enough of it unpunished in this world to teach us that there is a coming day of judgment. So God will use uh, examples in history where he brings the wickedness of the wicked back on their heads in order to show that he is not pleased with sin. And yet he allows the wicked to prosper to some degree in order to show that there is in fact a future judgment. Well, you can think of it the way, about the way, the way the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4 when he speaks about presuming upon the riches of the kindness of God. The idea here is that when you see the wicked prospering, you are to recognize that this is God's kindness to the wicked, that they might be given the chance to repent. God gives sinners the chance to repent, and this is the reason why this kindness is being shown. Now, these are, so 
backing up then, these are two ways in which we can think about the problem of evil and something of the solution that's given in the scriptures. We can think about the existence of evil broadly. We can think about the existence of evil in light of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has come. But there's even a third way in which we can think about that, uh, about this question. And that is, uh, how can it be that with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the establishment of the kingdom of God, that there can be a mixture of the righteous and the wicked even within the church. Now, when I'm saying righteous and wicked, I, I don't mean that the righteous are perfectly righteous. What I'm saying is, is that even though every person sins, every person, regardless of whether or not you're a Christian, sins, yet in the scriptures, the designation of the righteous is given to those who truly do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been counted as righteous uh, by faith in his blood, and who are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So there are those in the church, clearly, and yet there are also those who are unconverted within the church. And what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying here, and as has been evident all throughout the history of the church, there always has been and always will be in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ a mixture of the righteous and the wicked. And how are we then to understand this in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? In all of these ways, all these different questions with regard to evil, it always is a stumbling block to some. There are some who will say, if evil exists in the world, there cannot be a God. Others will say, if, if the righteous suffer and if the wicked prosper, there cannot be a God. And there are also those who will say, if there is such wickedness within the church, then there cannot be a God. You, you think of the way this works today with regard to those who will speak of the hypocrisy in the church. This is basically the argument that they're giving. They're saying, look, there's no way the church can truly represent the people of a good God if in fact, the church is full of so many hypocrites. And they'll say, I'm not going to be a part of that. This can't be the true religion. Now, apart from the, the fact that many times when people say that they are essentially slandering the church, the church is not uh, nearly so guilty of, the, the, of wickedness as uh, those outside of the church would, would like to believe. But regardless, we would even admit, to some degree, there is a truth to it. Uh, to some degree, we can say, there is, in fact, a mixture of righteous and wicked within the church. And to some, this is a stumbling block. And yet what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying here is that this is actually still a part of the, of the, the purpose and plan of God, that God actually allows the wicked to continue in the church, even to the very end, even those who will never be converted, they are allowed to remain in the church without a judgment for the sake of God's elect. Out of love for his people, God does this. It is a part of the plan of God. It doesn't demonstrate his weakness at all. And in the end, God will make it right on the day of judgment. Now, as we think about the way in which this question has been asked today, there are hypocrites in the church, therefore, I'm not going to be a part of the church. That's, that's typically the way, uh, the way the argument goes so often. Uh, this actually was a problem in Jesus's day and part of the thing that he is addressing now with the parables of the kingdom of God. You'll remember uh, the reason why Christ is giving the parables of the kingdom, this being the second one. The reason why he's giving these parables is because he is responding to the situation that had been given in, uh, recorded in Matthew chapters 11 and 12, where Matthew described the unbelief, the, the, the general rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Uh, Matthew 11 and 12 is the, the response of the generation that Christ had come to save. Uh, the, the response in general to his ministry, and overwhelmingly, Matthew records that this response is negative. The question then would be, 
if so few people are receiving the gospel, if so few people are receiving this Messiah, does this mean that the kingdom of God has in fact not come? Is this mixture of so many people who are living contrary to the gospel, uh, who are sown among the wheat by the devil himself, does this invalidate or can it be used as an argument against the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ? So as that question was asked then, so too it is asked now and against this the Lord Jesus Christ says that there will always be a mixture of the righteous and the wicked, uh, not just in the world generally, but even within the church, even within the church, God allows this to happen out of love for his people and he will make it right on the last day. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying with regard to the nature of the kingdom of God. Now, as I mentioned, this is the second parable that's given, the second parable of the kingdom. You remember the first one that, that was given was the parable of the sower. And uh, both the parable of the sower and this parable were given publicly with no explanation. Um, so there, uh, to the crowds, Christ simply speaks the parable and then he doesn't give the crowds anything else. And we looked at last week, the reason why the Lord Jesus Christ does this is because he's showing that knowledge of the kingdom of God must be sovereignly given. It's sovereignly given by God and it's withheld from others. And so Christ speaks to the crowds in parables, uh, basically, basically in order to withhold the truths of the kingdom of God from them, but yet he gives uh, the explanation to his disciples in private. Now, uh, there will be two other parables that are given publicly, which we'll look at next week, the mustard seed and leaven. And these are actually given even without private explanations, the idea being that these are clear enough uh, that we can understand them without uh, the explanation uh, themselves. Uh, and uh, all of these, all of these things that are given, all these parables are meant to show us something different about the kingdom of God, something, uh, some way to answer the problem that had been introduced in Matthew chapters 11 uh, and 12. And so because also this one is given first publicly, then privately, we'll look at this passage under those two headings. So we'll look first at the uh, public giving of the parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares, or um, using uh, a bit updated language, something like the wheat and the weeds in verses 24 through 30. Then we'll look at the explanation of the parable given in verses 36 through uh, 43. So look at me then again, uh, very briefly as we go over uh, the parable itself. You'll notice a few things as you look, particularly verse 24. Notice that Again, with regard to this parable, there is the imagery of sowing, the imagery of, of farming, the, the imagery of, of plants, gardens, uh, that sort of thing. This is very common uh, in these parables of the kingdom, the kingdom that the Lord Jesus Christ gives. Um, in all of these parables, there is something of an organic nature to the kingdom that is being highlighted. We'll see this also with the parable of the mustard seed next week. Uh, and really what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing here is he's building on uh, Old Testament images where the prophets would often speak of God sowing his people. So you think of, of uh, passages like Isaiah 5, where the Lord himself has a vineyard and he sows his people. He comes to it looking for fruit, doesn't find any, and therefore there's going to be a judgment that comes. Hosea, uh, a text that's very similar. Uh, there's often in the Old Testament uh, this, this use of language wherein the kingdom of God is described and compared to uh, to some kind of garden, some kind of, of, uh, of garden where God himself is looking over it. And the point here is that the Lord Jesus Christ is saying the kingdom of God is in fact uh, like this. It is in fact uh, like a garden in this regard. 
and in, in this way is also related to uh, probably as well the Garden of Eden, where, uh, where God had planted this garden and put man to dwell in. Uh, there is something of a recovering of that as we think of, of the nature of the kingdom of God itself. One other important point to note with regard to verse 24, you'll notice that here the parable is, is uh, said explicitly to be related to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field. Now there are some who will say that there is a great difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Uh, however, this is um, in fact not the case. So uh, th- there is really no difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Uh, Matthew likes and prefers the term kingdom of heaven. Um, Mark prefers the term kingdom of God. If you look at the parallel passages, uh, very often kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are the same. So this would be uh, contrary to what a dispensationalist would teach about a, a vast distinction between uh, these two things. Uh, so with that introduction, we have then uh, in verse 24, this parable where there is a man who goes out and sows seed uh, in a field. Then in verses 25 and 26, there is a problem that's introduced. So the man sleeps as the man who sowed the field. There's an enemy who comes and he sows, uh, he sows tares among the wheat. He goes his way. There is, uh, by implication, a certain amount of time that's passed. So nobody knows that he's done this. And you can't know that he's done it until, uh, until the grain sprouts and it produces a crop. And when that happens, after the grain has in fact come up, then the, wheat appear, the, the weeds appear also. So then this leads to uh, the servants coming and uh, asking the, the master what they are to do in verses 27 through 30. They say, you know, Lord, didn't you sow good seed? Where then did all of these things come from? To which then there is the response uh, of the owner who says an enemy did this. Notice he, he completely trusts his servants. He knows it wasn't one of them. He doesn't think it was an accident. When he sees the weeds come up, he knows in light of the nature of the case, the nature of the weeds that have come up, it must have been an enemy who did this. It must have been an enemy who sowed these weeds uh, among the wheat. So then the servants ask, you know, what should we do? Should we just gather them up? To which the owner then says, uh, no, don't do it now. If you do, then you may pull up the wheat. He says, let them alone. And then, uh, and then when everything is grown up, cut it all down and then separate them at that point. Now, this is just a, a summary of, uh, of uh, the parable. So, so there's, a, there's a, a field with wheat. Enemy comes and sows seeds. The weeds and the wheat appear together. Both will remain until the harvest. Now, again, remember, this is the only thing that's said to the people. They are not given any explanation with regard to the truth of these things. They, they understand that in some ways the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking about a truth with regard to the kingdom of God, but they are not given any insight into what it means. That privilege is reserved for the disciples alone. And so we have then uh, the explanation given in verse 36, at verses 36 through 43, where the disciples come and they, because they've been given the right to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, uh, they have the explanation given uh, to them. Now, with regard to the interpretation that's given, particularly in verses uh, 36 through 43, There are two things that emerge with regard to the kingdom of God that we need to keep in mind. There are basically two different phases of the kingdom of God that the Lord Jesus Christ is describing. There is the phase of the kingdom of God between the coming, the first coming and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is also what will happen on the very last day. 
Uh, these are the two things that the Lord Jesus Christ is emphasizing. So with regard to the first, there is an enemy who comes and sows these weeds. And there is a certain action that the, uh, that the servants of the master must take during this phase. Then there's also the consummation at the end, the very last day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And at this point, there'll be something different that the, that the servants will in fact do. And so these are the, the, the two ways in which we are to, to think about the kingdom of God. There's going to be something about the nature of the kingdom in its growth now up to the last day and something we must keep in mind with regard to the last day itself. Now you'll notice in verses 37 through 39, the main point is basically just to identify the different parts uh, of, of the parable. So we have given uh, that, the, that the one sowing the seed is the son of man, the fields of the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. So there's a, a number of, of things where the Lord Jesus Christ simply explains what each part of the, of the parable refers to. Uh, now, the first question that we have to ask with regard to understanding this parable particularly as we think about the, this first phase, so to speak, um, the, the, what, what Christ is saying about the nature of the kingdom of God between his comings. The first question we have to ask is, is Christ speaking about unbelievers in the church or is he speaking about unbelievers in the world? Is he speaking about unbelievers in the church or unbelievers in the world? Is, is Christ speaking about a mixture of the righteous and the wicked in general on this earth until he comes again? Or is he speaking more particularly about there being a mixture between the righteous and the wicked, not just in the world, but e even in the church itself? That's the question that we need to ask. You'll, you'll know from the, from the introduction that uh, I'm going to, going to be arguing that, that this is, in fact, Christ is, in fact, teaching that there will be unbelievers in the church, uh, not just in the world, but even in the church. Now, there are many commentators who will say that this must refer to unbelievers in the world in general. And the reason that they say this is because in verse 38, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ says that the field is the world. So the, the, the Son of Man is sowing the, the, the seed in the field. The field is not the, the kingdom of God. Not, it's not the church, but it's actually the entire world. And so they'll say that then the, the enemy comes and he sows uh, the weeds also in the field, which is the whole world. So this must mean that there is, in fact, then, a, a, a teaching that um, there will be righteous and wicked in the world all the way up until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some will even go further to say that, that um, if you were to say that there was a mixture within the church, that this will cause problems in terms of, um, in terms of our theology. We are not actually to understand that uh, Christ is teaching this. Um, some say that believing that the church cannot be pure, which is basically what the implication would be, it cannot be perfectly pure until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some will say that this would, would lead to a, a laxity in discipline. Uh, against this, however, this mixture has actually already been taught. It's already been taught in the very first parable, uh, where there is, in fact, if you remember, four different kinds of soils, and three of them make a confession of faith. Only one of them remains to the end. The parable, uh, the, 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 the rocky soil has, uh, they, is, refers to those who make a profession of faith and then they fall away later. Also, the soil that is uh, in the midst of weeds, uh, of, of thorns and thistles, they also make a profession of faith. They even continue for some time, but then the cares of this world choke them out eventually later. So that, that there is a mixture has actually already been taught by the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. 
And with, with regard to the, the implication with regard to uh, laxity of discipline, uh, this is actually uh, not, not the case actually at all. Uh, us being told that there will always be a mixture means that we must always be striving for the purity of the church. If we could be told that we, we, that we made it, then there'd be no reason to strive. The same is true for, for our sanctification. Uh, if you were told that you are in fact perfect, then there'd be no reason for you to pursue your sanctification. But the fact that you will never be perfect in this life in terms of your sanctification until the last day is the reason why you are to strive every day. And the same is true for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There will never be perfect purity within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ until the last day. And therefore, we must be diligent to pursue uh, the, the peace, the purity, and the unity of the church, knowing that this work will not be easy and that we must continue and labor in it uh, until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. So why is it then that we are to understand that this is actually referring to the church and not to the world? Well, the reason is that because uh, uh, even though it is true that the field is the world, uh, there are actually several indicators in the text that shows that the Lord Jesus Christ is actually speaking of unbelief within the church. And the reason for this, the, the, the clues that's given are first, normal unbelief, just generic unbelief in the world, predates the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that is to say, the weeds were always there. If the purpose was to say that the Lord Jesus Christ is only saying that there will be righteous and wicked until the last day, then to make that parable work, it would more be like the Son of Man comes and sows good seeds in the midst of a field that's already filled with weeds. But actually here, the emphasis is on the, that the weeds only appear after the grain has come up. They are sown in the midst of the wheat after it has been sown. The idea is that, that the gospel is preached, it's believed, it bears fruit, and then after the bearing fruit of the gospel, which happens in the context of the church, then the weeds appear. The emphasis is on the mixture that comes up between the wheat and the weeds uh, uh, within, uh, within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ after the wheat has in fact come up not just unbelief uh, in, in general. And secondly, though it is true that the field is the, wor is the world, uh, this does not rule out the church interpretation since the gospel is to be preached throughout the entire world. The idea here is that the Son of Man sowing the seed throughout the field simply means that the church is going to expand to the farthest reaches of the world. And that after that, then there will be this unbelief that in fact shows up. Uh, for, uh, thirdly, there is a, par uh, a parallel parable that the Lord Jesus Christ gives, the parable of the net, where the kingdom of God captures all kinds of fish, and then there is a division at the end of the age. Uh, the, this, this parable itself is very clear in terms of its reference to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the net is the kingdom, and the kingdom catches both the righteous and the wicked. And then there is a division at the end. So the parallel parable actually teaches uh, the same thing as well. What the Lord Jesus Christ is referring to is a mixture within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by implication then, when we see this, when we see within the church that there are those who are raised up, who are unconverted, and who labor against the peace, the purity, and unity of the church, we are to recognize, as the Lord Jesus Christ says here, when we see this, an enemy did this. An enemy did this. This will happen even within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will happen between the comings 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to recognize that an enemy did this. The kingdom of God is not of this world. And the enemy that fights against this kingdom is not of flesh and blood either. Our, our battle is with Satan himself. And therefore, as the Apostle Paul says, we are not to be ignorant of his schemes. If you were to think, what is it that Satan does? You think about, about him sowing the weeds within the church. What, what, does, what does Satan do to attack the kingdom of God? How does he fight and labor against this kingdom? Well, there are many things that he does. We could say that uh, first he deceives the nation so as to prevent them from believing the gospel. Read this from, from Revelation chapter 20. He persecutes the church to cause people to fall away. This would be attacks from, the, from outside of the church. He raises up false teachers within the church to preach, preach heresy, to turn people away from the church. And also here, he infiltrates the church with his own followers so as to bring shame on the church and to entice Christians to sin from the outside. When we see so many people say, you know, I can't be a part of this church because there's this or that terrible thing that happened within the church. Brothers and sisters, the fact that these kinds of terrible things happen within the church is part of the work of Satan that he is using to turn people away from the gospel. He wants people to be able to look at a church and say, well, look, they had this thing happen. When in reality, he's the one that planted the people there. Uh, and he did that in order to, to make outsiders say, well, surely, surely this is not the kingdom of God. It can't be the kingdom of God because all of these things are happening. Brothers and sisters, this is the work of the, the, of the devil. This is the work of the enemy. This is the way that, that Satan himself fights against the kingdom of God. And so against these things, we must have uh, a ministry that is faithful to the scriptures. Against deceptions, we must have true preaching. Against persecution, we must pray that you would be granted strength by the Spirit to withstand the day uh, of trouble. Uh, against false teachers, there must be a commitment to doctrinal purity and fidelity. Against unbelief within the church, we must have exhortations to repentance and faith and church discipline. All of these things, all of these things are the ways in which the church itself has been instructed to fight against Satan, knowing that he himself is fighting against us. We are to labor with the spiritual weapons that he has given to us. Now, uh, notice, when Christ says that all these things will remain until the last day, and even says further that his servants are not to do anything about it until the last day, he is not talking about the church doing nothing. Uh, the, the servants of the sower are not normal members of the church. They're not even humans. They're the angels. With regard to judgment, the angels are not to do anything. They're not to bring about any judgment for fear of destroying those who are the elect. But we, who are not in that position of carrying out the judgment of God, we ourselves are to labor. We're to recognize that the enemy will in fact and does, has sown even weeds within the wheat and we are to fight and labor uh, against him. Now, another thing that's important to keep in mind with regard to this parable, brothers and sisters, notice that there are two different kinds of seeds that are sown. There's the good seeds, which is described as the sons of the kingdom, and there is the bad, which is described as the sons of the devil, the sons of the evil one. All this is building on the language that was given in Genesis 3.15, where there were two seeds that were given in the very first gospel promise. There's a seed of the woman, 
and there's the seed of the serpent. These two will always be at enmity within, uh, uh, towards each other. They will always be at enmity within this world. And what Christ is saying here is that sometimes in order to bring down, to attempt to destroy the seed of the woman, the devil will sow the seed of himself among them in order to turn the seed of the woman away. Now, uh, notice that these, these descriptions, both the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, also the wheat and the weeds, these are descriptions that are given in terms of election. Uh, there's, there's no indication in the parable that someone can be changed from, uh, from the weeds to the wheat or vice versa. Um, it's not to say that there can't be a, a conversion or change of nature in general. It's just not the purpose of, of this particular parable. Uh, the point is that the good seed is the elect. They are those who will believe. And the bad seed, uh, the, the weeds, are the reprobate. There are those whom God has, in fact, not chosen. And this is important to, to uh, keep in mind in light of what's said in verse 29 in particular. If you were to ask, again, the most fundamental question, why does God allow those whom he knows will never believe and who are the seed of the, of the serpent, why does he allow them to continue? And the answer given is for the sake of his people. If you think about it, if God were to immediately judge, bring a judgment upon the church, there are some who may be elect and who are yet unconverted. And those would be swept up in the judgment. They would be swept up in the attempt to gather up the weeds. There would be some who are ultimately wheat who will be swept up. And so think about then, brothers and sisters, as you think about the arguments that are used in the church, there are those who are wicked. We admit it. But brothers and sisters, this is actually evidence of God's great love for you. He will not have any of his elect perish. And he will put up, even with the wicked within his church, even as they fight against him, he will put up with all of it to make sure that not one of those whom he has chosen from before the foundation of the world, that not one of those will be lost. The wicked being in the church until the last day is evidence of God's love. It's evidence of God's love for his people. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ would have you to understand. Uh, this is not to be a stumbling block for you, brothers and sisters. We are to expect it. It's going to happen. It is a part of God's plan, and it reveals God's greatness and his grace. Now, that's the first phase. Notice that in terms of the, uh, the first phase of the kingdom of God, notice that in terms of the, the explanation that's given, that actually the greater weight of it falls upon the judgment. There is a a greater emphasis on the first phase in the, the actual parable as it's given. There's a greater emphasis on the, the day of judgment in the explanation, which comes in, in verses 40 through 43. Notice then, uh, again in, in verse 40, there is the description uh, that's given, and it's filled out in verses 41 through 43. Uh, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The idea being that at the very end, there will be this separation that happens uh, the, uh, the Son of Man, Christ himself, will send out his angels. He will gather all of his people, all of the elect, not one of whom will be lost, uh, into, his, into his kingdom. He will cast out all the sons of darkness, those who practice lawlessness, where there will be a great judgment. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And on the other hand, there will be the righteous who will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now, in terms of the way the judgment is functioning in the parable, uh, notice there is a problem that was introduced. The problem is that the weeds 
are in the field. The judgment is actually the solution. We, we're, we are often very tempted to think of the day of judgment as a day that's going to be very difficult. It's going to be something that we, can, we must fear. But notice, the way the Lord Jesus Christ is setting up the parable here, the last day is the great day of salvation for the Christian. It's the great day of salvation where the solution to the problem introduced in the parable is actually solved. Uh, the day of judgment for the Christian is the day of salvation. And that's actually where the emphasis is falling. Uh, th there is a separation and the wicked will be judged. Uh, we'll, you'll, we will look at the parable of the net in a few weeks where we'll see that, that in that parable, the emphasis is falling more on the punishment of the wicked. Here though, the emphasis is falling more on the, the blessings of the righteous. There, there will be difficult times within the church. There will even be wicked ones who are sown within the church. We are to endure that until the last day. And on the last day, brothers and sisters, God will make everything right. He will perfectly distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, those who truly fear the Lord and those who do not. And on that day, those who are righteous will be so transformed that they will shine like the sun. Anyone who sees you will have to shield their eyes because of the glory that will be revealed in you as you're conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, as just like in his transfiguration, he could not be gazed upon, so too on the last day you will not even be able to be gazed upon because of the glory that will be revealed on the last day. And so as we think then about the answer to the question, so there's all these questions we can ask about evil. Why is there evil in the world? We can talk about that. Why is there evil after the coming of Christ? Why is there even evil in the church? With that last question, here is the answer that's given by the Lord Jesus Christ. God does this because of his love for the elect. He will not allow a single one to perish. Therefore, he delays the judgment until they are all brought in. And secondly, there is coming a day when he will root out all traces of wickedness. And on that day, he will make the righteous perfectly blessed and they will be with him forever. That's the answer that's given. When you see, like all the people around the Lord Jesus Christ at this time saw, when you see so much mixture in the kingdom of God, this is not to be a cause for you to stumble, brothers and sisters. It's to be a cause for you to remember the truths of Scripture, that you might rest in the love of God, that even as you see the unbelief, that you'd be astounded that God would wait on His judgment that you might be brought in. He would wait on His judgment that you might be brought in. And in bringing you in, that He would then preserve you until the last day when He is going to make you shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Such is the love of God that he has given. So far from evil being within the church, uh, being a reason not to believe in God. It is, in fact, the great evidence of the love of God. This is the parable of the wheat and the weeds as has been given by the Lord Jesus Christ to be a comfort to his people. May God grant that it would be a comfort to you, that you would not stumble when you see wickedness within the church, but that, but that you would labor and persevere uh, in laboring for the peace, the purity, and the unity of the church, holding fast to your confession of faith until that great day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns from heaven. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for your grace. How we do thank you for your kindness and for your love. Lord, 
what a wonderful thing it is to have these truths given to us. How thankful we are that you have not left us like the crowds who only receive the parable but not the explanation. Uh, how thankful we are, O Lord, that you have given to us the explanation of the parable. How thankful we are for uh, the way in which your word can make sense of so many things. And how thankful we are for the, for the promises of the scriptures that uh, help us to be able to persevere in our faith even when there are things around us that cause us to, to lament and mourn with regard to the kingdom of God as we lament the weakness of the church, as we mourn over those who turn aside. Uh, yet, Lord, help, help us to see that even in these difficult things that you are working out your sovereign purposes for the sake of the people whom you foreknew before all ages. Help us to see this, O Lord, that we might rest in your love all the more and that we might cling to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, there is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name.